As Mark had mentioned, please do continue to pray for Ray. That is a very serious situation for he and Judy to be walking through and challenged at this time. And Pray for the Clayton family as well with the loss of uh, Big Dave. Uh, pray for them as well. They need your prayers too. There's a, lot of, there's a lot of needs in our body. That's why we have a body. That's why we have a body. Because the expectation is that we love each other. We give. We serve here. The expectations in the church are high. They're high for love, for giving, for service, for tolerating one another in love. And that's what we're going to see today in the text. Expectations being high in the church. It's kind of our theme for the morning. This, uh, this past year, I was influenced by a woman named Candace, a man named Larry, and a man named Ben. They introduced me to a new concept I want to present to you. I'm thankful for the clarification that this concept offers. These folks, they all speak about America not suffering from systemic racism or white privilege, but from this. They su- America suffers from this, the soft bigotry of low expectations. The soft bigotry of low expectations. What does this mean? It means that we have bigoted, prejudiced, even racist people in America whose racism and bigotry doesn't show up in the open hatred of the KKK as much anymore, or Black Panthers for that matter, but rather in deceptive, degrading, and often unspoken low expectations of people's behavior. These, there are people in America who would look at the status or the life of a young man who lives right over here in Meade, Washington. Poor Johnny, they would say. He comes from a tiny, broken home in Meade, Washington, and is being raised by a single mother. His speech impediment and his skin color are a huge disadvantage for him. Therefore, we can't ask him to do well in his homework. We can't expect him to go to college. We can't expect him to get a job. We can't expect him to have the sense to not have children out of wedlock. And what we need to do is this. We need to prepare for little Johnny right over here in me. We need to prepare for him a welfare system, complete with food stamps, welfare checks, contraceptives, free abortions, free housing, free phones. Because Johnny will never amount to anything with all the challenges he faces. So it's incumbent upon us, the benevolent, the great defenders of society, to get the government to support his pathetic life. That's the way they think about Johnny over here. This is the soft bigotry of low expectations. It believes the worst about people based on the circumstances that attend their lives. You're too poor to do well in school. You're too disabled to support yourself. You're too oppressed to work hard. You're too depressed because of the inferiority of your skin color to ever amount to anything. Brothers and sisters, these are lies from the pit of hell. These thoughts do not conform to biblical truth. These lies don't conform to the gospel of Jesus Christ, nor do they conform to the power of God in salvation. This brings me to a significant question for you this morning. Is it okay for you to have expectations of other people's behaviors? Is it okay for you to have expectations of other people's behaviors? Shall you expect certain social behaviors from people, or is societal behavior just a free-for-all? You just do whatever you want. Shall you base expectations on someone's skin color, income level, neighborhood, or some other social demographic information about them? What about my behavior as a pastor? Do you have expectations of my behavior as a pastor? Do you? How dare you? (laughs) Yes, you should. Please, you should. You must have expectations of my behavior. And I would ask you, are they low expectations of me? 
Do you think, oh, poor little Oliver, he went to North Central High School, he can't do much of anything. <laughs> or do you have high expectations of me? Where did you get those expectations of my behavior? I hope from the Bible. It gives you some really incredible lists. 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, 1 Peter chapter 5. I love the qualifications of an elder. I really do. They are a safeguard for the church, and they're a safeguard for you. You make sure that wherever you go in life, and whatever you do, that you have leaders whose qualifications match up to 1 Timothy 3, Titus 1, and 1 Peter chapter 5. These expectations of behavior, they expect the best out of me. They make me grow in Christ. They make me grow to build his church. I love these expectations. Further, these expectations of my behavior, they are biblical. They are not man-made. They are actually achievable. And they do not place a burden on my shoulders that I am unable to bear. They do not place a burden on my shoulders that no one else is unwilling to come alongside and lift with me. They create the right burden. And so now a harder question for you. Shall I have expectations of your behavior? Think about it. Shall I have low or high expectations of your behavior? Do you really want me to have expectations of your behavior? Answer me. Are you sure? Should I just make up expectations from my own mind of what I think would be best for you? Or would you like me to apply a biblical standard in my expectations of your behavior? What if I had no expectations of your behavior? What if I had none? What if I thought that you were unable, incapable, too special, too significant, too insignificant, too rich, too poor, too oppressed, or too depressed, or just too troubled in life in general to expect anything out of you ever? Would that be loving? Or is love seen in appropriate High biblical expectations, regardless of the circumstances that attend your life. What's right? What's good? What's just? How would you feel if I had expectations of your husband to grow in Christ, but not of you, the wife? Wouldn't that be sexist and chauvinistic of me? What if I only set expectations for growth based on your age? You know, only the young are able to grow in Christ. You olders are the fuddy-duddies. You'll never grow. You'll never change. Wouldn't that be ageism? And wouldn't that be bigoted of me to do that? It'd be wrong as well, right? Well, here's the point. Take this down in your notes. You should always want high biblical expectations set on your behavior and the behavior of those around you. You should always want high expectations. And if I fail to place them on you because of your disability, because of your income, because of your age, because of your skin color, shame on me. Because in that instant, at that point, I have proven to you that I am a racist, that I am bigoted, and that I am prejudiced against you. But I love you. And I have the same expectations for all of you, regardless of your circumstances. What expectations do I have of you? You turned to Ephesians chapter 4. I have this expectation, that you walk worthy of the calling into which you've been called. Here in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul presents us with his own expectations of our behavior. And trust me, in his commands in chapters 4, 5, and 6 of Ephesians, there is no soft bigotry in Paul's expectations. Paul knows that every human being is capable of either with Christ or without Christ. 
And for those of us who have ears to hear, for those of us who have been elected, adopted, redeemed, and saved by God, Paul has the absolute highest expectations of our behavior. Amen. And so it should be, because salvation is a free gift, and it's an incredible gift. Paul demands a worthy walk in the body of Christ. That's what I've titled chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. A worthy walk in the body of Christ, where he labors in these 16 verses. He labors to inform us about guarding the body in verses 1 through 3. Blessings of the body in verses 4 through 12. And the building of the body in verses 13 through 16. I want you to see those divisions in the text. A text that is focused on body life in the church. But these divisions are the 30,000 foot level, so we come down and preach inside of them. But these 30,000 foot level divisions are helpful. Body guarding, body blessings, body building. These first 16 verses. And when we come down in closer, and we look right over the top of that body guarding demand that Paul makes in chapter 4 verses 1 through 3, we see that Paul confronts us with three commands of our calling so that our behavior might match the glory of our beliefs. That's what we see in the text. In verses 1 through 3, Paul confronts us with three commands of our calling so that our behavior might match the glory of our beliefs. Paul demands, as I told you last week, in verse 1 of chapter 4, walk worthy of the calling in which we've been called. So he's looking for a worthy walk. In verse 2, he's looking for a virtuous walk, where we're at today. A virtuous walk. And you know today, where we're at today, a virtuous walk. He's begging a virtuous walk of us. And then in verse 3, as we'll see next week, He begs for us to have a unity walk. A worthy walk, a virtuous walk, a unity walk. In these three commands of Paul, you must feel the weight and expectation of a worthy walk. That is a worthy manner of life, equivalent in weight to the weight and glory of God's calling that God placed on you. Remember, we talked about this last week. We talked about scales and God's calling and election and salvation being placed on the left side of the scale. And it's heavy. And he talked about, last week, this manner of life that you're supposed to live. This manner of life worthy of the calling into which you've been called is a weighty walk, an honorable walk, a worthy walk, and they should balance. There should be a matching between the calling that you've received and the conduct that you deliver. This week we need to focus then on chapter 4, verse 2, and consider the virtues of a worthy walk. Today we look at Paul's second command of our calling, the demand of a virtuous walk. He is begging for you to walk with these particular virtues. And we hope to see all that flows from the high expectation of a humbled heart as we look at this text. Let's see Paul's high expectation now as we read the full text together from verses 1 through 16 of chapter 4. I want to have this whole text in front of you. We'll circle back around and specifically discuss verse 2. Paul says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you, to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you also were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But to each one of us grace was given, according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led captive a host of captives and gave gifts to men. Now this expression, he ascended, what does it mean except that he had also descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is him also who ascended far above all the heavens, so that he might fill all things. And he, this Jesus, our Lord and Savior, gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, 
and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And as a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. But speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in all aspects into him who is our head, even Jesus Christ, from whom the whole body, being fitted and held together by what every joint supplies, according to the proper working of each individual part, causes the growth of the body for the building up of itself in love. Brothers and sisters, as we read this text, these are great, heavy, high, and lofty expectations, are they not? And they are glorious. But only if you have ears to hear. Only if you have ears to hear. And remember, I gave you this acronym last week, EARS, E-A-R-S, so that you may never forget why Paul can, should, and I dare say must make commands and demands of your behavior. Where does Paul get the nerve, the authority, the idea to command us in such a way? Ephesians chapter 1. You can review this with me in the text now. Ephesians 1. In chapter 1 verse 3, he said that God blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. How and why would he do that? Chapter 1 verse 4, God chose you, that is he elected you in eternity past, verse 5, to be predestined for adoptions as sons. Verse 6 tells us that he did this for his own purposes, to the praise of the glory of his grace. Verse 7 reminds us, God redeemed us through the blood of Jesus Christ, which is the forgiveness of our trespasses. And then in verse 13, God gave us ears to hear the gospel of our salvation, in which we were sealed together in him with the Holy Spirit of promise. Paul's big expectation for us come as the, rest of, as the result of the awesome salvation power of God. That's where these big expectations come from. It would be terrible. It would be a horrendous atrocity for Paul to make demands of our behavior if we had no way to meet the demands. That's not the way that salvation happens. That's not the way that church happens. That's not the way body life happens. It happens because there is a big salvation that's been applied. And then the commands follow because God knows the size of the gift that he's given you. Which of you would send your child into Rosar's with one dollar and ask them to come out with a gallon of milk and 12 of those tasty donuts from the butter bake shop? Not one of you would do that. You need to send 20 bucks in your child in to get those goods to come back out of the store. You don't under-equip children and hope for the best. You over-equip them and give them reasonable tasks. You over-equip. That's what God has done. He's over-equipped. You have no idea the size of the Holy Spirit that lives inside of you. You really don't. Performance of the commands in Ephesians 4, 5, and 6 requires that the Holy Spirit of God is living in you. And on this point, I have two concerns this morning. If you're visiting with us this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, this list of commands is not for you. It's going to be confusing to you. You'll feel very much pain as this list is unfolded. You are under-equipped. The Bible does have two commands for you this morning, though, that I would like to present to you before we get started which are more basic and come from Jesus himself from Mark chapter 1, verse 15. If you're an unbeliever, if you don't believe the message that Jesus Christ died to save for sinners, Jesus commands to you from Mark 1, 15 of these, repent and believe the gospel. My second concern is for those of us here who claim to know Christ, but in reality do not. This is my second concern. I have great concern for the pretenders 
that live among us. Perhaps you think that you asked Jesus into your heart when you were seven. Perhaps you walked forward at an altar call and gave your life to Christ at age 17. Perhaps you placed your hand on a television screen and responded to the call of a televangelist to allow Jesus to take the wheel of your heart at age 27. If your salvation starts with you asking, giving, or allowing God near your heart, you don't understand the salvation that Paul describes in Ephesians chapter 1. You have chosen a type of lesser affiliation with Jesus than is described in Ephesians chapter 2, which says in Ephesians 2.1 that you were dead in your trespasses and sins. But 2.4 says, But God made you alive together with Christ by grace you have been saved. You have made a Jesus then of your own understanding, and you are a pretender of Christianity. And as a result, your practice of obedience is also a decision, a choice that you have made as well. If you are a pretender, you'll find Paul's commands so taxing on you, you will do everything you can to hide, avoid, and run away from them, or you will continue to put on your show with external actions, but no internal heart attitudes. And that's the point that's going to hurt you today. This passage is going to tear you up at internal heart attitudes. You can put on all the action you want. You can't change the attitudes unless you have the Holy Spirit of God living inside your heart. Let me warn the pretenders now. Time and truth go hand in hand. One day you'll be found out. And my charge to you is this. My charge to you today is this. Humble yourself before God and his plan. Repent and believe and obey. Repent, believe, and obey. And for the rest of us, genuine, blood-bought, born-again, spirit-filled believers of Jesus Christ, Paul has presented to you, brothers and sisters, the command to walk worthy in chapter 4, verse 1. And now, in chapter 4, verse 2, Paul presents five attitudes adorning a worthy walk which guide our way to great unity, body unity, and God's glory. Let me say that again. Paul presents five attitudes adorning a worthy walk which guide our way to great body unity and God's glory. If we're going to get body unity and God's glory, it's going to be through these five attitudes which adorn our worthy walk. He lists five heart conditions which beautifully beautify a life honoring to God and make you able to grow up in the salvation that he has so freely given to you. So what five attitudes must adorn a worthy walk in the body of Christ? You see them in the text. Humility, number one. Gentleness, number two. Patience, number three. Tolerance and love, numbers four and five. Humility, gentleness, patience, tolerance and love. Let's consider Paul's call to a virtuous walk and think through the heart attitudes that adorn a worthy walk fit for those who have been called and chosen by God. Humility, number one in your notes. Humility, worthy walk, adornment, number one. Paul says, therefore I... The prisoner of the Lord implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been walked with all humility. Humility, brothers and sisters, is the headwater of all other rivers of virtue. Humility is the Lake Coeur d'Alene of the Spokane rivers of virtues in your life. No Christian virtue is singularly more desirable than humility from which all other virtues flow. So what is humility? Turn in your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians 2. Merriam-Webster's dictionary offers a definition of humility, saying that humility is freedom from pride or arrogance. Freedom from pride or arrogance. And that's a good start to a definition, but humility is more than the absence of the vice of pride. Humility is the presence of lowliness of mind and brokenness in thinking about one's self. 
David says in Psalm 51:17, "The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise." And for the Old Testament saints, humility meant lowly, poor, broken spirit before God. Jesus picks up on that very thought. Low, poorly, broken-spiritedness before God. In his Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, telling the crowd that had gathered, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Humility understands that we are but tiny, tiny creatures on a big, on a big earth. A big earth that's owned, powerfully created by God above, who has every reason to strike us dead because of the thoughts that we were thinking last night and the sin that we committed yesterday and the pride we have in our heart this morning. Every reason, but in his grace, he's allowing us all to be here together right now. Charles Spurgeon rightly says, humility is to make a right estimate of oneself before God. Bernard of Clairvaux said, humility is the virtue by which a man becomes conscious of his own unworthiness. Paul's Greek word here, Tepeno forsune is a made-up word. It even sounds made up. Tepeno forsune. It does not exist in the Greek language before the first century. John Wesley noted that neither the Romans nor the Greeks had a word for humility. Culturally, the idea of humility was absurd. So much so that pagan writers grabbed hold of Paul's made-up terminology and used it as a slang word of derision against Christians for their pitiable weakness. Humility was pathetic to Greek and Roman minds. Greek philosopher Epictetus listed Paul's made-up word for humility as the first quality in humanity to be despised. The same is true in America today, brothers and sisters, in the culture in which we live. You don't have to look any further than the leaders of our country for years to find that we suffer from leaders who despise humility. There is no brokenness before God. There is no lowliness of thinking. You're in Philippians chapter 2, where Paul directly tells the Philippians to put on a mind of humility. Not only do we see the command here for humility, but we also see the supreme example of humility in the text as well. Let's read the text and and continue to understand this greatest and most foundational Christian virtue, humility, in the example of our Lord Jesus Christ in Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse 3. Which says this, you, believer, Christian, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself taking the form of a slave and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, Jesus Christ humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Here's the picture. Our Lord Jesus Christ is in heaven, wearing his heavenly robe of glory, if you will, in which he has received glory, praise, honor to his name, For all of his existence, which has been eternal forever. 
He has zero reason to take off his robe of glory that he loves to receive his glory in. Except for this one reason. The eternal plan of the Father and the Son and the Spirit. The eternal plan included a need to rescue humanity from the stain of rebellion, sin, and death. And so, Jesus the Son humbled himself, laying aside, taking off, and laying aside his robe of glory, his garment of glory, laying it aside, and picking up the mantle of, and putting on a robe of human flesh. He came to earth, and was found to be perfectly the satisfaction for God's wrath. For God's wrath against all the sins of all the people that the Father had elected for salvation from before time. Turn back to Ephesians chapter 4. The text in Philippians tells us that Jesus lowered himself. He lowered his glory expectation. He lowered his standard of living. He did not come as a rich man, though he owned all riches. He came as a poor man. He did not escape the pain of this life. He could have chose a pain-free existence. But rather, his flesh was broken wide open as he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. James Montgomery Boyce says, Humility is refusing to insist on our rights and actually putting our neighbor's interests before our own. Brothers and sisters, that is exactly what Jesus did on the cross. What he did in wearing flesh, the flesh that wraps our being. In Christ, we have the picture of supreme humility. We are commanded then to have the same mind in us that was in him. To give up our rights and desires and to live sacrificial lives unto God. Paul says in Romans chapter 12 verse 1, Therefore I urge you, brethren, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living and holy sacrifice acceptable acceptable to God, which is your spiritual service of worship. How are you going to live holy, worship-filled lives before God? Peter tells you, all of you, clothe yourselves with humility. Clothe yourselves with humility toward one another, for God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble, 1 Peter 5, 5. Humility is the first virtue, the first heart attitude that adorns a worthy walk. And when we are found wearing humility like a garment, we are much more likely to deliver gentleness like Jesus at Calvary to sinners sinning against us on all sides. And that takes us to virtue number two in your notes. Gentleness. The second attitude adorning a worthy walk is gentleness. Let's look at this virtue. Let's look at this heart attitude, gentleness. Chinese Bible commentator Watchman Nee tells a story of humility and gentleness from an incident that happened on the hillside rice field farms of a Christian in South China. A hardworking Christian brother had to use a hand-operated water wheel to lift gallons and gallons of water into his rice fields from a stream that ran nearby his hillside farms. The neighbor below his fields and closer to the stream had two rice fields of his own. And one night, after the brother had filled his fields with water, the neighbor made a hole in the wall that separated the fields, draining the water from the fields above into his own fields. The neighbor stole the brother's water. The brother was distressed, but thought the best of the neighbor. Maybe it was an accident. Maybe something happened. I don't know what's going on here. Perhaps this thing won't happen again. But it did happen again. The neighbor stole the water again the next day and the day after. How does it stop? 
What should the brother do? Fight? Build a wall? Take legal action? He asked a faithful Christian friend who told him, If we only try to do what is right, surely we are very poor Christians. We have to do something that is more than right. So what did the brother do? He filled his fields twice each day with water from the handwheel, once for his neighbor's fields and once for his own. In time, the neighbor, guilt-ridden, really, and filled with shame that overwhelmed him, he sought the Christian brother out and asked about this peculiar behavior. Why do you continue to fill your fields twice? Why are you making provision for me? The brother shared the gospel of Jesus Christ. And God gave the neighbor ears to hear and eyes to see the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ because his sin and his theft was met with humility and gentleness. He was astonished and he was saved. We see gentleness here in chapter 4 verse 2 paired off with and immediately following humility in this list from Paul. Paul says, walk in a manner worthy of a calling with which you've been called with all humility and gentleness. And what is gentleness? Gentleness is the Greek word proutes. Proutes means meekness or mildness, the opposite of what is rough, roughness. John MacArthur says, gentleness refers to that which is mild-spirited and self-controlled, the opposite of vindictiveness and vengeance. Proutes shows up in list after list of Christian virtues in Ephesians, Galatians, Colossians, 1 Timothy. Interestingly, it shows up in the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, in Numbers chapter 12. Turn there. Numbers chapter 12. Where is gentleness in Numbers chapter 12? For many people, the Greeks, the Romans, we Americans, gentleness is just as bad as humility. Maybe worse because it seems really soft and weak and full of emotions and feelings. Harold Honer would like you to take that thought out of your mind. Harold Honer says, Proutes, the word, this word never conveys the idea of weakness. Rather, it implies the conscious exercise of self-control, exhibiting a conscious choice of gentleness as opposed to the use of power for the purpose of retaliation. Control, self-control over power. You might think of the taming of a lion or the taming of a wild horse. Once captured, these animals are subjected to the will of their master. As such, they retain their inherent power in their body physically, but only use it to accomplish the master's will. Captured horses and lions can be trained to do incredible tricks, can they not? Even gentle tricks. The power is present. It's under control. You're in Numbers chapter 12. What do we find here in Numbers chapter 12? Moses is leading Israel toward the promised land. And there's been grumbling and complaining along the way about his leadership. The grumbling and lies about Moses and God's plan are now happening at the most senior levels of leadership with Miriam and Aaron talking trash about Moses. God heard them. Uh (laughs) Uh-oh. Let's read the text and look for two pictures of gentleness in this text. Let's read this together. Numbers 12, 1. Then Miriam and Aaron spoke against Moses because of the Cushite woman whom he had married, for he married a Cushite woman. And they said, Has the Lord indeed spoken through Moses? Has he not spoken through us as well? And the Lord heard it. Now the man Moses was very humble, more than any man who was on the face of the earth. Suddenly the Lord said to Moses and Aaron and Miriam, You three come out to the tent of meeting. So the three came out. I've been spoken to like that before by my father and it didn't go so well. (laughs) 
Aaron and Miriam were not gentle in their words, were they? Not at all. God is gentle with his in his response. He didn't take the opportunity to crush them immediately. He pulled them for a, over for a side conversation. And there will be discipline if you read that passage. There's discipline. Things don't go well for Aaron and Miriam from that point. We find out, though, that Moses was the most meek and humble man on the whole earth. Wow. That's high praise. Especially after Numbers chapter 11. What happened in Numbers 11? In Numbers 11, the people had asked for meat. God said, okay, I'll give you meat. And before God could spell out his big barbecue plans to feed 600,000 Israelites, to give them all meat, look at Moses' bold, assertive, and confidence in Numbers 11.21 where he says, The people among whom I am are 600,000 on foot. And yet you have said, I will give them meat so that they may eat from the whole, for the whole month. Verse 22. Should flocks and herds be slaughtered for them to be sufficient for them? Or should all the fish of the sea be gathered together for them to be sufficient for them? He's kind of undermining God's plan there a little bit. He's not really thinking highly of the way that God wants to provide. He kind of jumped into the conversation before God had a chance to finish. And, and God speaks back very boldly to Moses. Verse 23, the, the Lord said to Moses, Is the Lord's power limited? Now you shall see whether my word will come true for you or not. So Moses went out and told the people the word of the Lord. Moses boldly questions God. And what this text screams to us is that meekness does not mean weakness. Meekness does not mean weakness. Gentleness is, is not soft, squishy, and emotion-driven. Meekness has room for boldness and confidence, even what we describe as power under self-control. Power under the control of its master. Turn back to Ephesians chapter 4. Consider also the gentleness of King David. King David, who could have killed King Saul on several occasions, but he restrained himself cutting off only the corner of Saul's robe. And even that afflicted David's conscience as his main concern was honoring and trusting God and submitting to God, to God's rules to not kill or even raise a hand against the Lord's anointed earthly king. David taught his men to humbly trust God, to exercise gentleness, self-control, and patience, which brings us to our third attitude adorning a worthy walk, patience, waiting on the Lord. Patience, waiting on the Lord. Attitude adorning a worthy walk number three. We see there is an order, brothers and sisters, a sequence, if you will, to these hard attitudes as humility needs gentleness, and gentleness then needs patience. One begets the next with humility as the headwater. And so we arrive here at the third attitude Paul demands that must adorn a worthy walk. Number three in your notes, patience. Paul continues commanding his string of attitudes, adorning a worthy walk, saying, walk in a manner worthy of your calling with all humility and gentleness with patience. The Greek word here for patience is a compound word, which literally means long-tempered. The two words that get smashed together are macro and thumos. Those might have a familiar sound to you, macro and thumos. Macro probably sounds familiar because it means tall, long, far, or distant. Thumos means heat, anger, or passion. Together they give a sense of distant anger or a long time until the heat arrives. Did you catch that? Patience means it takes a long time for the heat and the angry to, anger, to, anger to show up in your lives. And as I say that, that word picture, which doesn't necessarily manifest itself in the English word patience, all of a sudden you go, ouch, oh, that hurt. 
because my anger shows up so fast. It's not distant from me. It's my anger is very, very near to me. It makes us think about the way that we treated the kids yesterday. It makes us think about the way that we treated our spouse over the course of the last week or two or month. Even the Greek origin of the word for patience helps point out our failings to do patience. Moreover, we need pictures and examples of patience to better understand the command for patience. And so I ask you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. Turn to Romans 9. We are headed to my favorite question in the Bible in Romans 9 verse 22. 9:22. It's a great question because it gets right to the issue of God's plan and his sovereignty. And this question that casts your mind back to eternity past and shows you quite convincingly God's patience is ultimate patience. We have Bible stories that tell us about patience. Noah waited on God for 120 years, building the ark and allowing for the repentance of the people before God sent floodwaters that destroyed all of humanity except for eight. Abraham waited on God for his first child for 25 years, finally becoming the father of Isaac at the ripe old age of 100. Moses waited on God to deliver the grumbling Israelites for over 40 years. And yet, their need for patience ended. Their time of patience had a conclusion. It had and was met with satisfaction. God's patience with humanity has not had its full satisfaction. God's patience continues today, 6,500 years after creation. God's patience is intact with us even now. You're in Romans chapter 9. And Paul is declaring the absolute sovereignty of God over all mankind with regard to salvation. God is the potter. You are the clay. He made us. We did not make ourselves. As such, he knows who he will take into eternal paradise in heaven with him forever. And which of us will remain condemned in our sins and suffer God's eternal wrath in hell. This is the plan of God, which includes ultimate patience on God's part. Which you can understand from Paul's question very clearly in 9.22 of Romans. Where he says, what if God? What if God? What if God, although willing... To demonstrate his wrath and to make his power known, what if God endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? And so he did. To make known the riches of his glory upon vessels of mercy, which he prepared beforehand for glory, even us, whom he also called, not from among the Jews only, but from among the Gentiles as well. We serve a God of great patience. 6,500 years of patience. Discipline in 6,500 years? Yes, discipline. Discipline is love. Patience for every generation. Patience for each and every one of us. He is happy to display his patience to mankind because in each moment of his patience, he gives greater and greater salvation to those living among us. We talked about this earlier in Ephesians. There's upwards of 8,000 people that he's having to save every day. That he's choosing to save every day. Did you see that his patience is creating the space and the time for repentance? Brothers and sisters, he's given you today. Today is the day of salvation. Today repent. Today believe. He's given it to you in his patience and his grace. You don't know if you get tomorrow. You don't. Repent and believe today. God has opened up his patience for you to include today. 
You are not those who perished yesterday. And if you are here and you have not repented, repent and believe. He's given you the time and space today to repent. Paul asks a great question in Romans chapter 2, verse 4. He asks, Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and tolerance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? It is the kindness of God and the repentance of God, or the, the patience of God, the kindness and the tolerance and patience of God that leads you to the point of your repentance. Turn back to Ephesians 4. God's patience creates the time and space for salvation. You are not born humble. You are not born gentle. You are not born patient yourself. But God is patient. He's kind and loving. He brought you here today and has given you this space and time and even the message that you need to repent and believe. Are you thankful for the patience of God in your life? How many years ago should he have crushed you like a bug because of your sinfulness? But in his mercy... His long-suffering, his patience and kindness to you, he allowed you to be here with us today. Listening to his kind message of love, patience, and salvation, which only happens in the blood of his son, Jesus Christ. He has shown you his great patience, and he has shown you his tolerance towards you in love. And that brings us to our final attribute, our final two attributes, adorning a worthy walk. Showing tolerance in love. God's patience is extreme. So is his tolerance for us in love. I showed you this when we read Isaiah chapter 1 this morning to open our time. Isaiah 1 shows us the extreme tolerance in love of God for Israel. Paul demands that we offer tolerance in love for one another. Again, from Paul, there is sequence, there is order, there is intentionality in the progression of these attitudes. Humility begets gentleness. Gentleness begets patience. Now patience begets the need for tolerance in love. We see this next as Paul puts together the fourth and fifth attributes adorning a worthy walk. Points four and five in your notes are together as one. Tolerance in love. Tolerance in love. Why does tolerance need to be qualified with love? Why does tolerance need to be qualified with love? I think that you should know very well why tolerance needs to be qualified with love, especially on the heels of last Sunday being Mother's Day. Basic tolerance is putting up with, bearing with, and enduring. Tolerance in love is required when dealing with people called husbands. We know it. We know we are married way, way above our pay grades. We know that in the goodness of God, he has allowed our marriages to happen for our benefit. And then, praise God, he has Paul specifically add love to the command for tolerance, which really helps us out. We're not just being tolerated. Our wives are commanded to tolerate us in love. It's not the case that the husband has to tolerate the wife. That's not the case. Then that's not what you do. You don't tolerate your wife. Because wives don't sin. Except when they get together with their girlfriends and drink coffee. That's when sin happens. (laughs) But wives must tolerate their husbands. And when they do, ladies, you must tolerate us in love. (laughs) Harold Honer says, Tolerance left unqualified could result in resentment or anger rather than love. Just as resentment and anger have no place in your marriage, so too resentment and anger have no place in the body of Christ, the church, It's close quarters in here, brothers and sisters. It's close quarters. And it's getting hot. Got the AC. (laughs) 
It's close quarters. We must work together with one another, tolerating each other, tolerating each other. You know, I, I just think about worship wars that happen in other churches. That's not tolerating when we're talking about worship and, you know, this and that and the other thing have to happen. I think about tolerating each other, tolerating each other with the children playing in the foyer, playing outside with the, with the balls. I think about tolerating one another in our weekly and daily Bible studies, tolerating one another. We, we need to be a church that tolerates one another. So Paul commands us to adorn our worthy walk in the church by verse 2 of chapter 4, showing tolerance for one another in love. Notice Paul says, one another. This is directed at heart attitudes inside the church among believers. Why is tolerance needed in the church? Aren't we all just really nice, easygoing people pursuing the sinless perfections of Christ, being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit of the bond of peace? Just full speed ahead, right? We're all just there. Clint Arnold says, tolerance in love is needed for the false and sometimes grating personality quirks of others in the church. Tolerance and love is needed for the faults and sometimes grating personality quirks of others in the church. Well, good news for Community Bible Church. I told you about our members, 85 members, read through your applications. I'm happy to report that no one here is either grating or quirky. <laughs> however, 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 if, if grating and quirky becomes a problem at CBC, well, we'll just have to create a quirky people seating section. <laughs> And, and ask that you take the vaccine for quirky and, and perhaps come in with your quirky passport. Friends, we all are grating and quirky. We're all grating and quirky. We all have our moments where we need grace, where we need our friends to throw a wet blanket of tolerance and love over the fire created by our grating personalities. The demand for us is to grow in humility and tolerance in love with one another. We do well to remember Peter's command of us in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 8, where he says, Above all, he says, Above all, above all, keep fervent in your love for one another, because love covers a multitude of sins. The church must be the opposite of college campuses in our day. College campuses have become hotbeds of intolerance and hatred. Unlike colleges near us, in the church, you don't get to accuse your brothers or sisters of microaggressions. You, you can't declare instant victory in any conversation with the words, your comments triggered me. Nor will church leadership set up safe spaces for you to vent about your brothers and sisters in Christ. These policies on college campuses are indication of the soft bigotry of low expectations. You don't get that here at the church. There's no soft bigotry of low expectations in the church. We don't do bigotry, and we don't do low expectations in the church. The church is a place of high expectations, namely that you, Christian, with all humility and gentleness and patience, show tolerance for your brothers and sisters in love. We expect that you know salvation was given by God as a gift to you. We expect that you know that possession of the gift requires practice of its principles. We expect that you know that the world mocks and hates the humility and gentleness that our faith demands of you. We expect that you know that sin is the soup du jour, brothers and sisters. Sin is the soup of the day. And when you wake up in the morning, you need to plan on being sinned against. And your only honorable, worthy defense is to clothe yourself with humility and put on Christ. 
You must memorize and meditate Paul's five attitudes adorning a worthy walk so that you might stand a fighting chance to not sin in response to the sin that's definitely coming at you. Paul is begging a worthy walk from us. And we, he knows the hard attitudes that must consume you. Humility. Humility, the headwaters. Humility. Gentleness. Patience. Tolerance and love. Verse 3. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. That's the goal. That's what we're chasing after. That's a command. Be diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. We'll discuss that next week. Paul is begging you live a virtuous life which begins poor, lowly, and broken before God, humble. And Paul is not bigoted toward any of us in his expectation, far from it. We are all treated the same in the house of God. He has the highest expectations of your behavior. He expects the righteousness of God to come out of you in humility on par with the humility of our Lord Jesus Christ because he knows the salvation that was given to you by the Son of God. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew 11. Matthew eleven 25. I'm going to end our time here in Matthew eleven twenty five. 25. The practice of these five virtues, these five heart attitudes, brings God the glory and guides us in great unity in this body, the church. These five virtues, these five heart attitudes, they benefit our families, they benefit our neighbors, they benefit our community, they benefit our nation, they benefit the world when we practice them. They even benefit your own soul to do these things. For the benefit of your soul and your worthy walk before God, let me ask you a few questions to reflect on your heart's response to Paul's demands of you. Does the practice of your faith suffer from your own soft bigotry of low expectations? Does the practice of your faith suffer from your own soft bigotry of low expectations? Have you thought little of the salvation supplied to you by God in Christ? Have you missed the fact that high expectations are wise, good, just, and necessary? How is your hunt for humility? If not humility, in what will you clothe yourself today? Does God have the right, and I dare say the obligation, to make demands of you? Everybody said yes and amen. What burdens are you shouldering? What, what, what burdens are your shoulders fit to carry in this life? What burdens are your shoulders fit to carry in this life? Do you trust the word of God to make right, good, and just expectations of your behavior? If there is nothing wrong with Paul's demand of you for humility and gentleness, patience and tolerance and love, will you eagerly pursue them today and for the whole of the rest of your life? And let me ask you this, for your own personal benefit in this, will you be blessed by the pursuit? Will pursuit of humility and these virtues, these five Virtues that adorn, these five attitudes that adorn a worthy walk, will pursuit of them actually lighten your burdens in this life? Oh, that you would see that they would. You're in Matthew chapter 11, verse 25. I leave you with the words of our Lord Jesus Christ. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and the intelligent and have revealed them to infants. 
Yes, Father, for this was well-pleasing in your sight. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, nor does anyone know the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son wills to reveal him. Come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. Father in heaven, it is the desire of the hearts of your children to bring honor to your name. We desire to walk worthy of the calling into which we have been called. We desire to honor Christ who willed to reveal salvation to us. And having been willed salvation by Christ, we come. We come to take on the yoke of gentleness. We come to take on the yoke of humility. We come to take on the yoke of patience and of tolerance and love. Because for us, Father, we see that there's no other way in this life. There is no better blessing set before us than the pursuit of righteousness that is the pursuit of humility and clothing ourselves in it. Father, would you get that from us? Would you help us in pursuing and chasing humility? We know that we will never achieve full humility in this life, but the pursuit of it is worth it because it means we will be closer and closer and closer to you. And we all need that. We need a light and easy yoke and burden. And we see that Christ has prepared that for us. Bless us in this pursuit, we pray. Amen.